I am the lead pastor of New Life Fellowship Church, and wherever you're joining us from, whether that's uh, on YouTube, whether that's on Facebook, whether that's on newlife.nyc, I am so glad that you are with us. Now, a couple of things. We are going to have a sermon discussion time at the end of this service. I'm going to be hosting that time, so I'm going to preach for about 30 minutes, and then we'll have a 10-minute break or so, and then I'm going to go right up to my office open my laptop, and then have 30 minutes of conversation with anyone who wants to discuss the sermon. There's a sermon link right there, so feel free to check that out. We do this every week. A different pastor hosts it. Today is my uh, day to host it. Also, I want to let you know, we'll get some more information on this next week, but on March 21st, March 21st, we're going to have a special virtual gathering for, uh, for newcomers around the country. Over this past year in this pandemic, there have been lots of people who have found New Life Fellowship Church. They had not been attending church. Many people had not been Christians before. And they were just saying, you know what, I, I know I live in uh, Oregon or live in uh, Texas or live in Michigan, but uh, I, I'm attending your church. And so I want to be able to connect with folks that are gathering from around the country, uh, tuning into our services. So on March 21st, we're going to have like an hour special gathering for those newcomers around the country outside of the New York City area. Lastly, I'll just say this here, that we're, today's Communion Sunday, so feel free to prepare for that. We're going to have a message and then go and receive communion together. We are in a series focusing on the book of Job. We are in week number four. We are in this Lenten season. And uh, last week's message was on lifting our minds and hearts to God, on focusing on our own laments and joining others in their suffering. Uh, today, we're going to emphasize something a little different. Last week was kind of emotional. If you, know, if you need to cry, cry. And if you, if you need to enter into someone else's space, do that. Read those Psalms. Read the book of Job as a means of entering into the suffering of others and encountering God there. Today's message is a bit different in that I want to focus on kind of the theological underpinnings of the book of Job that are deeply uh, rooted inside of us, negatively rooted inside of us. Uh, in the first week of Job, we focused on chapter 1. In the second week of Job, we focused on chapter 2. In the third week of Job, we focused on chapter 3. We're going to do something a little wild today. On the fourth week of Job, we're focusing on chapter 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, all the way up to chapter 37. Amen. 33 chapters we're going to do in about 30 minutes, all right? Because we're going to get the thrust of Job's friends' uh, theological argument and why this is rooted inside of us and what God wants to do in us. And so, although that might feel overwhelming, stick with me, brothers and sisters. We will get through this together. We're going to look at Job chapter 4, beginning at verse number 7. And this is essentially is the summary of the next 30 chapters that we are going to see. And so, hear the word of the Lord. This is one of Job's friends talking to him after they break their silence, having seven days of silence with Job. Hear the word of the Lord. Consider now, who being innocent has ever perished? Who were the upright, where were the upright ever destroyed? As I have observed, those who plow, plow evil and those who sow trouble reap it. At the breath of God they perish. At the blast of his anger they are no more. The lions may roar and growl, yet the teeth of the great lions are broken. 
the lion perishes for lack of prey, and the cubs of the lioness are scattered. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word to us this morning. And as we journey through this book of Job, speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. We open ourselves to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Throughout the course of our lives, we will come across various messages that we will believe to be true. And it's hard to know where these messages come from in the journey of our lives, but it's often the case that we believe them to be true, and consequently they shape how we see the world, shape how we see our circumstances, shape how we see God, shape how we see ourselves. They're phrases that come to mind, principles of this world, maxims that we hear from time to time that we believe to be true. And it's not that they're necessarily not true, but it's often very short-sighted, these principles. For example, we hear things like, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Whoever wrote that probably never went to middle school because we know these things to be true. We hear phrases like, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We hear that, and I don't know how true that statement really is. We hear things like, time heals all wounds. And in fact, that might be the case, but that's not always the case because there's certain people, many people, who have been holding on to significant wounds for a very long time time. It's not that these messages are bad, but these messages are often very short-sighted, and this short-sightedness of messages often impacts our lives, and we find some messages here in the book of Job. Theological messages that are short-sighted and narrow that must be rejected because they live inside of us. And I would go as far as to say that if we don't identify some of these messages that we find in the book of Job, that live deep inside of us, it will continue to negatively impact our relationship with God, our relationship with our neighbor, our relationship with ourselves. And so we're going to examine the messages of Job's friends. Now, Job's friends usually get judged harshly when we read the book of Job. But I want to say from the get-go that Job's friends need to be commended. There are certain things that Job's friends did that must be praised. They did at least three things right early on in the book of Job. First of all, they visit Job when they find out he is suffering. They visit him. That's a great thing. Good friends visit friends who are in distress. The second thing that they did was they they allowed themselves to give expression and suffer with Job. Job tore his garments, they tore their garments. Job put dust on his head as a sign of grief, they put dust on their head as a sign of grief. They'd enter into Job's pain. The third thing they did that let's give them some props is they were silent with Job for seven days. That is to be commended. Some of us, we can't be silent with a friend for seven minutes. Amen. Seven hours. But they are with Job silently for seven days. They leave their house to go with him. They suffer with him. They are silent for seven days. We need to give them credit where credit is due. But after this moment in chapter 2, It all goes downhill for Job's friends. Because when they speak, they have a lot to say. 
And their speech is informed by a particular way of seeing the world, and it comes across as harsh. It comes across as ill-timed. But what's going on inside of them is there is a theological message, a theological principle that helps them see the world in particular ways. What we see over the next few chapters, the next 30 chapters, is a series of conversations that Job has with his friends. And it's a lot of conversations. And and he has three friends who come on the scene, and the, the, the pattern essentially goes like this. Job's friend says something, and Job responds. The second sentence says something, Job responds. The third friend says something to Job, and Job responds, defending himself. And then they do it again for the second round. And then they do it again for the third round. Here, 30 chapters or so of conversations that Job has with his friends. And before I talk about the bad things that they said, or the negative things that they said, or the misguided, myopic, narrow things that they said, they said some actually good things at first. I want to highlight a couple of them. In Job chapter 5, as they're talking to him and giving their advice and helping him to diagnose the situation, they say these words, resentment kills a fool and envy slays the simple. That is true. Resentment kills and envy slays us. In Job chapter 8, hear these words. These are good words, true words. They say, ask the former generation and find out what their ancestors learned. For we were born only yesterday and know nothing. And our days on earth are but a shadow. Will they not instruct you and tell you? Will they not bring forth words from their understanding? Job's friends are saying, let's look at our ancestors. Let's look at the people who have come before us. Let's learn from them. These are all very good things from Job's friends. Let me give them a shout out one more time. Look what they said in Job 11. Can you fathom the mysteries of God? Can you probe the limits of the Almighty? They are higher than the heavens above. What can you do? They are deeper than the depths below. What can you know? Their measure is longer than the earth and wider than the sea. All of these things are true from Job's friends. But in their case, they often applied God's truth or good wisdom incorrectly. And what we learn is a few things. We learn that you can have good theology, but bad timing. Someone say amen in the chat section there. You can have good theology, but a bad spirit. You can have good theology, but bad application of it. For example, the Bible says to rejoice always. But if you come up to someone who just lost a loved one a couple of hours before, And you say, you got to rejoice always. That's what the Bible says. It comes across as incredibly harsh and ill-timed. The Bible says that we must forgive. But if you come up to someone who's just been betrayed deeply and you say, you know, you got to forgive that person. You got to forgive them right now. It comes across as harsh and ill-timed. In the process of this conversation with Job and his friends, there were some significant things that they said that must be questioned, that must be rejected, beliefs that they had about God, things that they said about Job that were unhelpful, but they were part of their ancient culture, which brings me to an important point about the Bible, and I'm happy to talk about this at the sermon discussion time. Just because the Bible records it doesn't mean God always recommends it. That's an important thing we see in the book of Job. Just because it's in there 
in the Holy Word of God doesn't mean God recommends that, and, and just because Job's words and his friends are offered advice, offered advice in this Bible doesn't mean that God actually approves of their advice. What we're going to discover is that they had lots of theology, lots of messages that were not necessarily true, and at the core of their theology was what we called a couple of weeks ago the retribution principle. The retribution principle. The book of Job, yes, it's about suffering, but at the core of the book of Job is this. The retribution principle is on trial. That's what's happening in the book of Job. And the retribution principle is essentially this. The righteous always prosper, and the wicked always suffer. It's the message that says, if you are prospering, it's because you've done something good. And if you're suffering... It means you've done something bad. What I want to do for the rest of our time before we come to the table of communion is tease this out in the way that this is lodged in our souls because we are called to reject this retribution principle. And by rejecting it, we are, we are not to assume that God's blessing or judgment on, on individuals is based on external circumstances. But these messages live deep inside of us. And so I want to focus on four theological messages of Job's friends that live inside of us. Job is probably the oldest book in the Bible, but thousands of years later in Queens, New York City, and wherever you're watching this from in 2021, these messages often live deep inside of us and impact our relationship with God, ourselves, and the world around us. The first theological message of Job's friend that lives deep within us is very simply this. All suffering is the result of someone's sin. Suffering is the result of someone's sin. Now, on one level, this is true. The Bible says that sin and suffering entered the world because Adam and Eve were disobedient in the garden. When they were disobedient, sin and suffering is launched out into the world, which is a good way of putting your own mistakes in context. Uh, your, your mistake did not launch sin out into the world. That's a bad day. Adam and Eve's sin launched sin and suffering out into the world. And so, yes, there's a theological truth that we must retain here that sin ultimately is responsible for the suffering that we see. But on another level, this is actually very dangerous and wrong. We see this, however, in the Bible over and over again. That Sin and suffering, or suffering happens because of someone's sin. In the book of John, for example, in John chapter 9, someone comes up to Jesus with a theological conundrum. And this is what it says in John chapter 9. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. They came across a guy who was born blind, and they said, we got to figure this out. Who sinned? The, the, guy, the parents or the guy, which, which, would be, which begs you to ask. I mean, this is a bad kid if he's sinning in the womb. How could he be sinning in the womb already? That's the question that they're asking. Who sinned, this guy or his parents? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. In one sentence here, Jesus rejects the notion 
that suffering is always the result of someone's sin. Now, does this happen sometimes? Of course it does. If someone has an affair, that sin is going to cause lots of suffering in the family. If someone embezzles money and finds himself in prison, that suffering is going to come as a result of their sin. This is not hard to see. The problem, though, is that correlations are made in such a way that are so absolute and often so judgmental and often so harmful. For example, in some Christian circles, Christians have this propensity to correlate the suffering we see in the world with the sin of particular people. After 9-11, there were some Christians out on television saying, the reason why there was a terrorist attack on U.S. soil was because of gay people. And what did they do? They made that correlation. Their, it's always somebody else's sin, by the way. Their sin led to this suffering. After Hurricane Irma, there was a Christian celebrity who said that God sent the hurricane to teach humility. In essence, saying that the suffering was brought about, this hurricane was brought about because of our sinful pride. Sinful pride leads to this kind of suffering and destruction. And this retribution principle of the reason why there's suffering is because of sin works its way out, not just with hurricanes and terrorist attacks, but in smaller ways as well. Smaller ways that are so caught in our subconscious. Smaller ways that are hard to even name, but we feel it deep inside our souls. In small ways. And so you can't find a parking spot. And you're circling for a long time and you wonder, I think I'm having a hard time here because I haven't been praying. I haven't been going to church. You lose your job and you, you conclude, oh, it's because I have this struggle with this particular area of sin. And because of this particular area of sin, I'm going to lose my job now. You get sick in your body and you go, oh, this is because I have not been reading my Bible. And all of this sees God, hear this, it sees God as someone who's ready to catch you in wrongdoing. Like, like God is the officer on Queens Boulevard near the mall with the radar gun out. Let me give some context for people outside of Queens. On Queens Boulevard near Queens Center Mall, uh, years ago, Queens Boulevard used to be called the Boulevard of Death. We remember this, yes, because people were driving crazy on this massive boulevard. And so there were some changes that were to be made, a, a, a vision zero policy that, to help people and hope, uh, come against the, the death that we saw on Queens Boulevard. And so they put the miles per hour to 25 miles per hour on Queens Boulevard. Every, almost every day I drive towards this way to come to the church, especially when I was coming into the office every day. And at one point over a tunnel, there is an officer who's typically waiting there. Some of you say amen in the chat who know what I'm talking about. And they're, they're waiting there, and, 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 and the radar gun is out. And you, and you know it's there. And so there have been times where I've been going 27. 
28. I got too many tickets going more than 35. And so 27, 28, and I see the radar gun out, and I'm thinking, oh, no. I'm going 27 in a 25. I'm going to get another ticket that I have to hide from Rosie. This is going to be really, really bad. And here's the thing. We often believe, and it's, I've never received a ticket going 27 in a 25. But here's the thing. We often view God in that way, don't we? That, like God is that officer waiting for the slightest transgression to make you experience some kind of suffering. And the image of God that we have is a God who's ready to pounce on us. And so it's a fear-based relationship with God. It's a relationship that says, God is saying, I am meticulous in what I want, and if you don't do it perfectly, you are going to suffer. And it happens deep inside our thinking, deep inside our souls. And so as a result, we're relating to God in a fear-based way, not in a love-based way. The Old Testament, John Walton gets at this, which essentially gets to Job's friends and how they think about it. In ancient times, uh, uh, Dr. Walton says that the gods have far more regulations than humans know or recognize. There are so many ways one might offend the gods in one's ritual performance, one can never claim not to deserve suffering. Job's friends are saying, there's so many regulations, Job, you could not have done all of them right. And so therefore, you must deserve the suffering that you are getting because you can't do everything right. And what does this do? This sees God as someone who's so meticulous and ready to pounce on you if you just miss the mark just a little bit. A few weeks ago, I had a pastoral meeting with someone who said, Pastor, I think the reason I'm still unemployed is because I haven't been praying enough. And so I said, tell me about your prayer life. How often do you pray? And he said, you know, I pray every morning and pray at night before I go to bed. But I know it, it was like God is withholding this from me because I'm not praying enough. And what does this do? It, we, we come to kind of conclusions about our image of God, of what God is like. The first thing that comes to mind in them is that, in Job's friends, is that if you're suffering, it's due to some kind of sin. And it works itself out in the rest of the chapters. The second message that flows out of this in Job's friends is essentially this. If you just repent, you won't suffer. And so hear this, all suffering is a result of someone's sin. The second piece is, if you just repent, you won't suffer. Look at what it says. But if you will, in Job 7, if you will seek God earnestly, plead with the Almighty, if you are pure and upright, even now he will rouse himself on your behalf and restore to you your prosperous state. Hear their message. Hear their advice. They're saying essentially, repentance will get rid of your pain. They, they love Job, but they're caught in this retribution principle, this way of seeing the world. And so their only recourse is to encourage him to repent, even though we know at the beginning of the book of Job that he has not sinned in this way that deserves all of this. They can only say to him, you must repent. But it's a formula that's ultimately unhelpful because there's nothing that can safeguard us from suffering. 
We live in a broken world, brothers and sisters, a world that's marked by sin, a principle of sin, sin and death. At some point, we are all going to experience some form of pain, some form of suffering. But we believe in a formula that says if we just repent enough, we could safeguard ourselves from pain. But Christianity doesn't offer that formula. Christianity doesn't say if you repent, you will not experience pain. As a matter of fact, Jesus says, if you're going to follow me, you have to take up your cross. He's not talking about jewelry. He's talking about a life of a, a crucified life in which we offer ourselves in self-giving love, suffering self-giving love to the world around us. Christianity doesn't say, if you simply repent, everything will be made right. You will not have any pain. You will not have any suffering. That's much too myopic of a way of seeing these things. But we're regularly looking for formulas, for magic, for incantations to keep us from experience pain, experiencing pains. And these friends are stuck in this mindset. Job, if you just repent, you will prosper. And it's not just repentance that we hear those words. There's always formulas that we're looking for. If you just did this, you will get that. Well, what happens when you do this and you don't get it? If you just had enough faith, then your problems will go away. And it's often the case that when we see someone ex experiencing struggle, so easy to go, are you believing? Are you trusting? And you're saying, I'm doing my best, man. I'm trying as hard as I can. But if this is your mindset, you're saying you're not trusting enough. You're not believing enough. And what it comes down to is a very rigid way of understanding the world. If you just did this, you will get that. This is fixed in Job's friends' minds. But it unfolds even further than that. In these 30 chapters or so, we hear another message that comes up repeatedly. And the third message of Job's friends is, people get what they deserve. People get what they deserve. This is so deep inside of them. Now, this theological statement makes it seem that God always rewards or punishes people based on merit. If you work hard and live right, all will go well. If you don't work hard and you sin, all will not go well for you. And this line of thinking is, again, so dangerous because it's rooted in all kinds of assumptions. For example, many people think that if poor people just worked hard enough, they would not be poor. If you just worked hard enough. If you just tried harder, you will not be poor. And what this fails to recognize is that the vast majority of poor, economically disenfranchised people do work hard, often multiple jobs. And there's more to success than just working hard. That's the message of the American dream. If you just work hard enough, you can reach all your dreams and become whatever you want. And what this doesn't reckon with is that there are often larger forces of injustice that prohibit the kind of success that people truly long for. Additionally, what this does is it strips out the truth of the grace of God. 
because God doesn't relate to us in this way. Jesus says it in the Sermon on the Mount in this way. He says, God makes the rain to fall on the just and the unjust. But this is so rooted in Job's friends and so rooted in our lives as well. Here's the last message that they give. And this, all of this is worth chewing on for the next week. But I want to focus on this last one and then go into communion. Their message to Job is all suffering is a result of someone's sin. If you just repent, you won't suffer. People get what they deserve. And then here's the fourth one. The innocent don't suffer. And to this point, for Christians, my response is, just look at Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is the true innocent one. Jesus is the one without sin. Jesus is the pure and holy one, the perfect and spotless Lamb of God. And he suffered, in his innocence he suffered. Suffered for us. Suffered on our behalf. When Jesus was being crucified 2,000 years ago, one of the reasons why many people could not put their trust in him is because they said, if he's being crucified in this way, he must have done something wrong. But what we see on the cross is not the retribution principle at work. What we see on the cross is the redemptive principle at work. The principle that says that God's grace is not conditioned on our merit. God's grace is conditioned on God's grace and God's love towards us. And this is to forge in us great humility and great gratitude because God has poured out grace on an undeserving people. We're going to go to communion, and this fits so beautifully with the table of communion, because the question we must ask ourselves when we come to the communion table is, who does God invite to the table? People who are righteous and deserving, people who have their act together and have done many good deeds, People who are always going to multiple church services and not sinning at all. That's not who God invites to the table. God invites us to the table not based on our performance, but based on his forgiveness. God invites us to the table not based on our good deeds, but based on the goodness of God. God invites us to the table not because we are good, but because God is good. And we are invited to the table not because of this principle of retribution, but because of this principle of redemption and forgiveness. Some years ago, I had a friend who lived in my neighborhood who went to the same church I did. And whenever Communion Sunday came up, he was very anxious. And I would see him a few days before Communion Sunday, just really depressed and down. I would say, hey man, what's going on? He would say, I got caught up in a sin this week. And I'm really saddened by that because that means I, I can't receive Holy Communion. And I would see his depression and the distress on his face. What was happening there? Very simply, he was living according to the retribution principle. The principle says that I'm sinful. Therefore, I need to be excluded from God. But when you look at Jesus and you look at the table, who does he invite to the table? Sinners. 
Who does he invite to feast with him? Those who are broken. Those who cannot rescue themselves. And this is why we come to the table of communion today. Not based on our works, but based on the work of Christ. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your love, your grace, which is better than life. And we we come to this table of communion now based on this redemption principle. A principle that says, even though I don't deserve it, you make space for me. Even though my life is marked by sin, you offer forgiveness. And so we come humbly and repentant as we feast with you at this table today. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to get prepared to uh, receive the bread and the cup. And for some of the staff that's around here as well, feel free to grab uh, any of the elements that you find in the room here. I want to give you about 15 to 20 seconds of your own repentance. Before we come to the table, we want to receive the forgiveness as a means of recognizing communion with God and offer our own repentance. And so let's, pray, let's have about 15, 20 seconds of just our own confession before the Lord, and then we'll pray a prayer of confession and receive the bread and the cup together. But let's pause and offer our confession before God. Amen. Let's pray this prayer of confession. Uh, We can put on the screen as well. Together, Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we have sinned against you and our neighbor through our own fault, in thought, in word, and deed, in what we have done and what we have left undone. For the sake of your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, forgive us all our offenses and grant that we may serve you in newness of life to the glory of your name. Amen. The Apostle Paul says these words in 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. As the people of God forgiven by the bodily sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Let's receive the bread together.
In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. As the people of God, freely forgiven by the blood of Jesus Christ, let's all receive together. Lord, thank you for the gifts of the bread and the cup. Thank you for your forgiveness, your mercy, your grace. Thank you that you pour out grace to us in ways that confound our minds. We thank you for the gift of communion, the gift of your forgiveness, the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen, friends. As we close our service here, I want to let you know of some next steps that uh, you can uh, take today. Uh, at the end of the service, as I mentioned, we're going to have a sermon discussion time. And so about 10 minutes after the service, there's a link that you'll find on our Facebook page, on our newlife.nyc page, as well as on our YouTube page. I'll be leading that time. And so if you want to just have a conversation, discussion on some of these things, uh, feel free to join us. We'll do that for, for 30 minutes. Also, I want to let you know that if you need prayer today, if you just find yourself beaten up by life, find yourself struggling, and you need just someone to pray for you, we have our, our prayer room, our virtual prayer room available. And so feel free to click on that link as well and let one of our leaders pray for you this day. Additionally, for some of you, you're watching this maybe for the first time. Or maybe you've been tuning in to our services very recently and you've never said yes to a relationship with Jesus Christ. You've never said yes to following him. You've never said yes to his love and to his grace and to his forgiveness. On the screen, there's a, a number that you can simply text yes to Jesus to that number. And one of our pastors would love to follow up with you and help you begin your journey. If today you, you've been living your life according to the retribution principle and you realize there's a better principle, a deeper principle, a principle called redemption, and I want to enter into through this relationship with God, let us help you on that journey. And so feel free to text yes to Jesus to the number on that screen. As we close, let me invite you to open your hands towards heaven to receive a blessing. We close every gathering with our hands outstretched before God because the world is filled with cursing. We want to leave this gathering receiving the very blessing of God over our lives. And so with your hands in your hearts in a posture of receiving, brothers and sisters and sons and daughters of the living God, may the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you and fill you with peace. And may you walk out of this online gathering in the power of the Holy Spirit saying yes to this redemption principle. This principle that God's grace is the best news in the world. And may you receive that grace and offer it to others this week. I bless you all in the strong, in the beautiful, in the gracious name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen.
Grace and peace to you, friends. See you next week.